0: You're listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10:30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from Pastor Lee Mason. With you, I turn to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. And uh, this morning, I am uh, really excited about our service. This is something that I have uh, wanted to do uh, for over 20 years. When I was a, uh, this is called this day. Uh, in the church is called All Saints Day. It's in the church calendar. It's a very special day. And I remember first hearing about it when I was 20 years ago in seminary. And they were talking about church history. And it's a real fascinating class. And in there they talked about, the the teacher was talking about how the church would commemorate martyrs through its early history and, and how when it became an established religion in Rome, they had a day called All Saints Day where they really remembered the sacrifices of those in the past. And I remember thinking, that's an incredibly cool thing. And, and I thought, if I ever started church, and as we even began to plan this church out, one thing I wanted to do is make All Saints Day a very big day. And I, I envisioned us walking in here with, you know, things on the walls that reminded of us the martyrs inspiring stories. And Maybe having it real dark and solemn and lighting candles and just having a really cool, solemn, sort of appropriate environment. And so I had all these really big plans for All Saints Day, and I thought, well, this will be just every, every year. That'll be the, just a big thing in our church. It'll be a time for commitment. and It'll be great. And what happened, though, is that All Saints Day always falls on the Georgia-Florida weekend. <laughs> and so, I remember the first time we talked about this, Paul Reeves, who was our worship leader then, and I were talking about this, and we were going through it, and I said, we can get candles, and we were in an elementary school auditorium, which would look kind of weird to begin with, but he was, and I remember him looking at me and going, Leah, this isn't going to work, <laughs> no one's going to be here this Sunday, there were, and it really was true, there was 30 people at church that Sunday, and I just kind of got lost my vision, for All Saints Day, so this is really a cool day because this is uh, because the game was early in October uh, last week. That literally, this is the first time we've really had a a our congregation together that we can actually do an All Saints Day together. So let me tell you a little bit about All Saints Day, and why I think it's important. Why I think it's a really crucial opportunity for us as followers of Jesus to really recalibrate our lives around the importance of serving Him. And remind ourselves of of the crucial, crucial commodity the Christian church has. The most crucial commodity we have to advance our faith is our commitment to Him. Our commitment. Our commitment is priceless, it is more important than any building, it's more important than a celebrity testimony that makes Christianity cool, it is more important than anything is the commitment of normal, average believers to follow Jesus with all their heart. And this is what All Saints Day is about. In the, in the history of the church, uh, when we study church history, we find out that very very infant early church initially, one of the things they would do is that whenever somebody was martyred for their faith, uh, they would bury them and they would regularly, on the anniversary of their martyrdom, they would actually visit their tomb, and they would have a prayer visual, and they would take communion there. Now, that went on for years, and of course, for 300 years, the church was persecuted. It was rejected by the Romans, and it was, were, you know, we know from history, horrific outbreaks of persecution against Christianity, and then with Constantine, when he became emperor uh, and 40% of his empire was Christian, he decided, let's make this a official religion of the state. And so when he did that, you know, Christianity was able to build buildings and it was able to to sort of be a lot more of a formal religion. And one of the things we know the church did early on, we know this from records that date from 377. So we know this for a fact, but probably before that, they started a The first Sunday of November, what corresponded to their November, they held a special church service called All Saints' Day. And what they did in that day initially is, as a church that had become established, that had now had buildings, that had fought, persecuted for 300 years, they wanted to remember where they came from. And so they remembered the persecuted. And they would have a special service where they would remember them and they would honor them. And they would uh, give homage to them. Now, what happened in time is this holiday got corrupted. Now, one of the ways it got corrupted is they got so enamored with how holy these martyrs were that they actually believed these people could be mediators between them and God. And so they would pray to saints. They would pray to these people to, because they felt they had special favor with God and you know, we could just bypass Jesus altogether. I don't know why they wanted to do that, but that's what they did and that became sort of a corruption. But another corruption happened is All Saints Day became a great fundraising opportunity. Now you can imagine what it'd be like to sit here and tell you the story of martyrs and their sufferings and what they go through and We're going to just happen to have a building drive. We're going to start that day. And it was a great, so the the day got corrupted. And as church history went on, it became a very weird, corrupt uh, holiday. It was something very special. Uh, After the Protestant Reformation, though, the the Lutheran church continued to celebrate All Saints' Day. And they celebrated it as uh, the victory of Christ over death. And they celebrated it as the triumph of the church. Uh, over evil, and that was a really cool way to celebrate it. And then the Methodist Church celebrated it as just a remembering of all saints who are known and even those that are obscure who follow the Lord. So it was an interesting day. But what we want to do on All Saints Day, I think, is, are three things that are very important. One, I think it's very important that you and I, as Christians in this incredible country where we have so much and we are so blessed. It is very important that we remember that we are happy and we are joyful and we are saved and heaven-bound and free. Because sinful, broken people just like us laid down their lives and died for the gospel. Oftentimes in very cruel, hideous ways. That there is an army, there is really a nation of Christian martyrs over the past 2,000 years that laid down their lives and died so we could know Christ. And it is to absorb that reality and act appropriately to that reality uh, for us is very important. That's one of the reasons. Another thing to do about All Saints Day is to remember that today in this world there are literally hundreds of millions of Christians who are facing persecution. There, there are maybe, they think, up to 200 million believers who are in countries uh, where persecution is part of the, uh, they're, they're in persecuting uh, governments. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3. Paul told the first, or not Paul, but the writer of Hebrews told the first century believers, and you can read it up here. Just continue to remember those in prison as though you were together with them. In prison, we're called. Remember those who are in prison as though you were together with them, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. And so, one of the other things All Saints Day wants us to do is not only have an appreciation for the sacrifices of the past, but also realize that today there are fellow believers, fellow Christians, uh, around the world that are suffering for their faith. We want to remember them as though we were in jail with them. We want to be feel their sufferings and join with them and praying for them and praying the gospel continues to prevail in, in their communities. And the, the third thing I'll say today is it is a it is an understanding and sort of a, a, a celebration of Christ's victory over evil and over death. There's a powerful uh, passage in Revelation chapter 12, I think we read from it, Uh, During the inspiration and it's a really cool chapter in the Bible and it uses a lot of mythology and imagery to portray what spiritual warfare really is. It talks about Christ being born and he's a conqueror and there's this dragon, this evil who is going after him and he can't get him and there's this war in heaven and God and his army is prevailing against evil. And the Bible says literally Michael, who's the head warring angel, literally hurls the dragon. And he describes him as Satan and the serpent, the, the whole embodiment of evil, this dragon. And he holds him up. And he literally he takes all his territory in heaven. They completely vanquish him. And they hold him up and they hurl him down to the earth. A completely defeated he lands. And he's just furious that he's defeated. And he takes his rage out on the followers of Christ. And it is to celebrate that, that in persecution we realize we are being attacked by a furious foe who is utterly, hopelessly defeated. And he just, all he has left is rage toward the followers of the Lamb here on earth. And the Bible says in that in that chapter, it says, Those even on earth overcome him. And they do it by the blood of the Lamb. We overcome him because Christ washed away our sins. He made us right with God. He made us clean with God. That blood, what it did to our souls, we overcome evil by that. We overcome him by the word of our testimony. When we are willing to speak the truth and share the truth. We overcome, and then he says a third thing: we overcome by not loving our lives even unto death. And so we celebrate the fact that that spirit victory in this life for us is possible because of those three factors. And so that's what All Saints' Day is about. And it's so important that we calibrate ourselves around the historic church and the price it's been paid. I've got a good friend I was talking to last night uh, um, from Atlanta who was involved in a large church media ministry for years. Very successful, very good one. And they were doing a lot of work overseas. And through that work, he began to get involved with Christians who were being persecuted in the Middle East and who were suffering for their faith. And And he felt so moved by it. And, and he was really, really moved by it. And then something happened that caused him to start a ministry particularly focused on the persecuted. And what happened is he was overseas and he was in the Gaza bank and there was a guy he had met who had a Christian bookstore. And this guy's bookstore, the, the terrorists in uh, Gaza, in the West Bank, had told him, close this store or we're going to kill you. They blew up a store once or twice. He kept... Going on, and so finally, what they did, they kidnapped him. They took him out to a graveyard, and they sent pictures to his wife, and then they shot him in the head, and they killed him. And Joshua this guy, a friend of mine was involved in trying to uh, make sure his wife and his kids were safe, and it was all this, and he was involved with this event, this martyr, this hero of the faith, who's taking the gospel to the Muslim world. Against incredible persecution, then he got on a plane and he came back to the west and he went to a family member's church and that church had been spending literally three months on a drive about the environment and what the Bible said about the environment and being environmentally sensitive and and not that that's not there, but he was a little per- thought that was kind of interesting. He literally went to a Bible study of his family member. And they were repenting over the size of their carbon footprint. Now, can you imagine, only in the West, he goes from a guy who is, has literally faced death, undaunted, was murdered for his faith, His wife is, you know, they're trying to take care of her and and protect her from these crazy maniacs that hate God and hate the gospel. And he comes back to a world where, in a Bible study, the biggest concern of a church is its carbon footprint. And see, we can, if we don't watch it, Western Christians, we can lose passion. We can lose Blood and fire and and, and the, the real guts of what it means to be a Christian. We can be enamored with God's commitment to us and really neglect our commitment to the gospel. And this is why it's good to have a day in the church where we remember you and I are saved and joyful and celebrating this morning. In part, in a large part, because sinful, broken people like you and I laid down their lives for the gospel in the past. And so I want to look here at a passage real quickly in Luke chapter 14 where Jesus talked about what it meant to follow him. What it would mean. What it means to be a disciple. What it means to be a follower of him. And this is, let's pick it up in John, in, excuse me, Luke chapter 14 verse 25. In verse 25 it says this large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And and whoever does not carry their own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Verse 28, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, say, this person began and was not able to finish. Verse 31, Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the others is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Verse 34, Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil or for but nor for the manure pile, it is thrown out. Whoever has ears, ears let him hear. Here's, here's what's going on here. This is a time in Jesus' ministry which theologians call, it's, it's the beautiful springs. And what happened, it was between two springs, about a 15-month period in Jesus' ministry. And during these 15 months, Jesus was doing Jesus. I mean, he was just, he was being the, the guy that we, we rave about in history. He was the most popular rabbi in all of Israel. He would go speak and fields would fill up to hear him speak. And he would speak all day. And people would forget about that they hadn't eaten lunch. And then he would do a miracle and he'd feed everybody. And then he would do miracles and he was, he was healing people and, and throngs of people followed him. And he would debate and dialogue with the religious leaders and he would just dis- destroy them in debates and leave them speechless. And he was just, you know, just rocking. He was, he was dynamic. He was miraculous. He was like nothing anybody had ever seen before. He was Jesus in all his human glory. And during this time, large crowds were following him. And it's interesting that Jesus looked at it and he knew, it's, it's just, the true thing is popular is often very shallow. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. And a popular spirituality can be very shallow. And so Jesus looks at that crowd. And he begins to detail what following him really is. And he uses a couple things in there that are very interesting. One thing he talks about is, right off the bat, if you don't hate father, mother, sister, brother. He talks about family. You cannot be my disciple. Now, what does that mean? To hate your mom and your dad. To follow Jesus. Now, back in those days, and it's probably true today, there was a phrase a parent would use to manipulate their kids. And they would go, Oh, you hate your mother. Oh, you hate your father. If a kid did something, if you, you wanted a kid to go pursue this career, and he wanted he, you, know, you would take him to college, and he was supposed to be a businessman or a lawyer, and he decides he wants to be a musician, you would go, oh, you hate your mom and your dad. You hate us, don't you? You know, and it was just a way to manipulate him. And it was basically a way to say the, the, the power a parent or a family member has over. Another to control their decisions and to persuade them, and what Jesus is saying is this: the the power of it's it's a good thing to love your parents and honor your parents, and to love your family and honor your family. But the power to persuade you needs to be Him. The ultimate power needs to be Him. What ultimately gets your Commitment is Him, not even your family. As good as it is to be committed to your family. Ultimately, it's Him. That's what it means to be His disciple. That's what it means to be following Him. Hate father, mother, sister, brother. The ultimate commitment is to Him. Second thing He talks about is taking up your cross and following Him. Now, that would have been a horrifying thing to hear in that day. In those days, whenever somebody was being crucified, they would take a beam and they would put it across their back like this. Often they would strip the person. And they would run them through the streets and crowds would gather around and they would scream at the victim and they would spit on the victim and they would throw stuff on the victim. And it would be this incredible uh, convergence of social ostracizing and uh, on the way to your painful, gruesome death. And Jesus said, you know, are you willing to carry a cross? Are you really willing to take on social derision if necessary for my sake? Are you willing to do that? Carry the cross. And So then it goes on and what Jesus begins to go on in describing what it is to follow him, he talks about um, in the next verse about, and this is something a little more practical, he talks about the idea of somebody who starts building a tower and doesn't finish it you know, back in those days great people built towers if you wanted to build a, you wanted to, to you know be famous be known uh, you were you know you would build a tower and that would be your tower and um, that's just what you would do and but a lot of times back in those, so they'd build towers would to do something very great. But a lot of times people would try something great and they get halfway through it and they just wouldn't have what it took to finish. And it was kind of a, it kind of make you a little bit of a joke because you were you know, just sort of a, sort of a very ego-driven thing to do, build a tower, uh, you couldn't finish it and it doesn't work out. It's eh, it's kind of, you become kind of a joke. And Jesus is talking about the importance, if you're going to follow him, if you're going to be a disciple, of finishing. I want you to say that is one of the most important things you can do, is finish. 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 I, I, I'm a minister. I see this all the time. You'll start something, you'll get a great turnout. We're going to reach international students. Oh, yes. But in time, what happens the thins out. We're going to go reach Rock Springs. We're going to go reach, yes, in time, thins out. We're going to start a Bible yeah, thins out. Life happens, things go on, and people don't finish. People don't finish. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, finish what you start. Finish. Don't start, finish. There's a phrase in the Bible about vision. It's it's really an interesting You'll read it every now and then, where a prophet or someone will get a scroll, and he'll tell them to eat it. And they'll eat it. And it's a vision of what God wants to do. And it, it always says this every time in the Bible. It's about a half dozen times. Every time this happens, the prophet always remarks this about the vision they're absorbing. It says this phrase, it was sweet in my mouth, but bitter in my stomach. Sweet in the mouth, but bitter in the stomach. And what that simply means is everything God's going to want you to do in your life is going to take longer, cost more, and be more grueling than you think it is. Everything. I promise you. Everything will be. Everything. I remember when we moved to a home in Beechwood years ago. My wife and I needed to be remodeled. And we had a budget we set on what we were going to do. We had things we wanted to do to it. And we had a timetable. And we did. it was the most grueling. It took longer. It was more expensive. It, it's just what happens with projects. I remember one time we were going to redo this yard. And I remember this. This guy cut down all these trees. He had ground up all these, you know, the limbs. And instead of grinding them in the backyard where I wanted them, he ground them in the front yard like in my doggone driveway. So I had like a lily taller than me was this, which I'm over six feet tall, and this was a pile of, of pine chips that I was going to take and mulch up these two big... Um, uh, Downhill. I don't know what you call it, but just, huh? I don't know. You know when you, (laughs) when the ground goes down into a flat at a flat place and it went down, the went down. and I was going to put some mulch on it because (laughs) I don't want it to. And so, and so I was like, and then a huge rainstorm happened when it was still bare, and like mud just slid all over this. And I was like, oh, I remember going out. I'd get home in the afternoon, late afternoon, and every day, I'd go out till past dark, and I'd just shovel. First, I'd shovel the mud back on, and then I'd go, and I would get my, uh, there's probably a better way of doing this, I didn't know. I just got a wheelbarrow, and I got a pitchfork, and I just kept putting that stuff in the wheelbarrow, and I'd walk around. And I'd pour a thing out. And, I, and eventually, you know what I did? I didn't quit. I got straight through, and I got that whole backyard uh, looking fab, fabulous, and it was wonderful. But it cost more, and it took longer than I thought it would. You've got to be committed to finishing. I, I remember uh, one of my best friends here in our church <laughs> was with him, and they were um, God had led them in a really powerful way to adopt a, a, a gal from another country bring her here and and make them her daughter. And uh, I remember the whole thing, and it was kind of miraculous how God started it. Man, it was sweet in the mouth. But I told you the story, you'd cry. But I remember when they were actually going through the process, every, every, we had a Bible study together every Thursday morning, and he'd give me an update. And I would just grimace, what next? Wife getting lights. You know, This breaking, that breaking, this going wrong, can't get the agency, looks long. And it was just longer and harder than they ever imagined. But it was well worth it. Everything, everything that's going to matter in your life that God's in, more than likely, It's going to cost more than you think. It's going to take longer than you think. It's going to be harder than you think. And it is going to be more worthwhile than you think. More worthwhile. This is what it means to follow Jesus. You finish. You finish. You you get committed to doing something. You finish. You finish the tower. That's what he says. The next thing he talks about is this. I think it's really kind of interesting. He's saying, he compares it to fighting a war. And he compares this: What if a, a, an army has ten thousand and they're going to fight an army with twenty thousand? Now he says this, and it's really interesting. Jesus is not saying don't go fight that war, but he says this is what you ought to be able. You, what you ought to do, though, you ought to ask: Are you able to win? Are you really able to win? Now, the history of the world, every great kingdom that has ever existed came about because the few fought the many and prevailed, including the kingdom of God, and especially the kingdom of God. Beleaguered early Christians were facing the Roman Empire and the wrath of a mad, crazy uh, Caesar named Nero. This monster. And he was literally crucifying Christians in the arena. The, the streets of Rome were lined with crucified Christians. The, the horrors and the, the, the games they would play with Christians in the amphitheater. Of, could you imagine? Literally, they would take kids and they would dress them up in sheep's skins. And they would run the dads out there, Christian dads out there, shepherds. And they would release wild wolves. That would rip their kids to pieces their dads are helplessly trying to fight them off and 50,000 people in the roman Colosseum were cheering and screaming and and, and encouraging it on and they face that kind of thing and and yet what happened in time over time over hundreds of years in the year 330, Constantine looked at his empire and said, my God, 40% of my empire are born-again Christians. We can't beat, We cannot beat these people. Against all odds, the Christian church prevailed, and it always will prevail. Bible in Revelation describes Christ as, he, he says, those that are with him, he, they, they, he, it says they will overcome the believers because He is Lord of Lords. He is King of Kings. And those that are with Him are faithful and they're true to their faith. Always does. That's our heritage. And Jesus is saying this, if you're going to follow Me, you're going to fight against the odds. And the way you win a battle, when the odds are against you, is you have greater commitment and you have greater passion. That's what it means to follow Jesus. You dare fight against the odds. You undauntedly go after it. That's what it means. Commitment will win. It will prevail. So the last thing Jesus says in there is this. He talks about salt. It's kind of a a phrase that he's used a few times in the Bible about salt losing its saltiness. If it's salt, it's not salty. It's good for nothing. Now, what does he mean by that? Why does he say salt? And if you look in the Bible, there's a. This actually begins in Leviticus chapter two, and then it's repeated and uh, later, and then in Chronicles there's a, a phrase where where uh, God tells uh, the prophet tells David, you have a covenant with God that's a covenant of salt. And what would they would do back in those days? In Leviticus two, you can you can uh, read this when they would make their sacrifices uh, before they ate. The sacrifice that they were going to partake in with God, they would uh, sprinkle salt on it, and that salt was to be a reminder. And the idea they were ingesting, they were making a. a in the ancient Uresis this was common when salt was used in covenants; it meant that covenant was a permanent, lasting covenant, and, and that you were committed to that covenant. Sometimes in marriage ceremonies, people will, will use salt. I don't advise doing that. But if you sometimes they'll, they'll mix salts, and it's it's a it's it's a, it's used in covenant. The the phrase uh, you know the word salary actually came from uh, the word salt, and and uh, the phrase worth your salt we use this, but the idea is it's it's about commitment. and It's about commitment to a covenant. And Jesus says this: What happens when salt loses its saltiness? What happens when tape loses its adhesive? You know, tape loses its adhesive. You know what it's not anymore? It's no longer what? It's no longer tape. It's, what, 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 would you, what do we do with a piece of tape that has no adhesive on it? Hey, throw it away. It's no good. It's worthless. What do we do with a pen when it has no ink in it? You throw it away. I don't understand that. People have pens that don't work. They put it back. I'm oh like, I can't wait. Throw the pen away why people keep pens around that don't work, don't work. it's no good it does if a pen has no ink it's not a pen Jesus is saying this what is salt it's not salty it doesn't have that flavor it's good for nothing it can be thrown away what is a believer what is someone who says they're in a relationship with Christ and they're not committed to it there's no commitment you know what he says it's no good. Your religion, your faith is no good. No matter how piously you talk about it, dreamy elaborations of it, it's no good. If there's no commitment, it is no good. It's not even good for a menorah, is what Jesus said. I'm going to close with this story. There's um, there's a, there's a church church leader in the second century named Polycarp. You wanna write that one down, Polycarp. And one of the things Polycarp did was he told he wrote the history of uh, the Christian faith. He wrote things that he knew about, and and one of the stories he wrote about was a story of Philip. Remember one of the twelve disciples, Philip. He's kind of mentioned every now and then. Uh, very little, but he's he's in there. And uh, Philip went and he started a church in a city called Hierapolis. It's in modern-day Turkey. And when you walk into Hierapolis, there's three huge arches and there's two huge towers. And Hierapolis was pretty awesome. It was a it was a city dedicated to the emperor. And when you walked in, there was a lot of, it was funded heavily by Rome. When you walked in, there was actually a mile and a half long paved street of of beautiful stones. And it went all the way for a mile and a half. And it had a gate on the back end. So it's a very beautiful town. Gorgeous town. Very prominent. Dedicated to the emperor. And when you walked in, they understood that the emperor protected that city. That city was protected by the emperor. And they believed the emperor to be a god. And so when they walked in, they would do these sacrifices to the emperor. And you would pay money. And when you paid money, they would take some ash. And they'd wipe the ash either on your hand or on your head. Now, when Philip was going to go start a church, and if you refused that, they would crucify you and your family. First, they crucify your family in front of your eyes, and they crucify you. That was what they did. (coughs) Philip was told about all this. And he was warned to be very careful about going. And Philip's response, according to Polycarp, was this. He said, I saw my rabbi feed 5,000 people with two fish and five pieces of bread. I saw my rabbi walk on water. I saw my rabbi speak to a storm and it stopped. My rabbi promised he would never leave me. He would never forsake me. He would be with me to the ends of the earth. And Philip and his family walked in and they began a church in Heropolis. It went on for many years. In 85 A.D., uh, under the emperor Domitian, uh, Philip was um, found, he was crucified, then he was crucified upside down in the city of Heropolis. Now, church historians have researched early church, and they believe, almost to a man, that the church Philip started in Heropolis became the most expansive and the most impactful church in the ancient world. And it literally is the church that reached out to Western Europe and eventually brought those people here to America to bring us the gospel. So this morning, what I want to ask you to do is to really check yourself out. The the Christian faith's greatest commodity are really only real Capital resource Is the salt The commitment You and I have To Christ That is What has built This incredible kingdom That's all over the world today And that's what we'll continue To build and So as you and I receive This faith that these People in their past have brought To us what do we do with How do we, what what obligation do we have to make Jesus the ultimate voice relationally? What willingness do we have to go against society? What are we doing? What have we started that we need to finish? What daring wars do we need to go fight undaunted by the odds? That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to be His disciple. Let's remember that and let's embrace it in our day. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we thank You for such an incredible Savior, such an incredible God. And we know the history of our faith is... People that are like us, they are not special people. They are sinful like us. They probably did sins they hated just like we do. They were broken. They had quirky, unrepaired parts of their personality that just never came together like we do. But they were connected to you like we are. And you're an incredible empowerer of broken humanity. And we pray that in our time, in our age, you will make us worthy of your blood, make us worthy of, of the sacrifices of those in the past, that we would make appropriate commitments to you in light of who you are, in light of what's been done, in light of what we've received. Help us to respond appropriately. Help us to be truly salt in our time here on earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.